So I'm Hannah Riley-Bowles. I'm Research Director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, where we are committed to closing gender gaps in political and economic participation, health and education. And um, I'm thrilled to introduce our uh, speaker today. Uh, Shelley Carell is a professor of sociology and organizational behavior at Stanford University. She is the Barbara D. Finberg Director of the Clayman Institute for Gender Research. So there's their kind of gender center there over at, uh, over at um, Stanford. And you may also have caught wind of it because they, they've really been partnering with Cheryl Sandberg in her um, campaign to get more women in top level positions. I love the Let's Ban Bossy that's been yeah. flying around. I don't know if anybody hasn't seen that, look for it. It's, um, and uh, for little girls, the idea is let's ban the notion of labeling uh, girls with leadership potential as bossy. Um, she, I've been a long time admirer of Cheryl's work. Uh, earlier in her career, she was looking, she looked a lot at how gender um, shapes what you um, what would call like the supply side of the labor market. That is, you know, workers entering the workforce, how they look for work. She, she was interested in how um, gender shapes the career aspirations of young people. And then increasingly, she's shifted now to looking at the demand side, at um, you know organizations and institutions and how they shape um, men's and women's um, career choices and paths. And she's got a lot of really exciting work going on um, through the Clayman Center. Similar here, we're very interested in organizational interventions um, uh, that can help reduce gender gaps. And um, uh, Shelley's uh, through the center, they've been looking a lot at uh, work family arrangements that could help uh, reduce gender gaps. She's also doing some fascinating um, work uh, with tech companies. And today we're going to hear about um, an extension of some of her work on the motherhood, motherhood penalty. So please join me in welcoming. So uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's my uh, first time to see winter this year, so um, <laughs> enjoying that. <laughs> um, Okay, so uh, what I want to talk about today, the question I want to try to uh, have us think about together is whether family-friendly laws and family-friendly organizational policies, things like maternity leave and the like, um, can reduce some of the biases that research has shown that mothers and other kinds of caretakers experience in the workplace. And I'm going to um, a little bit go through what some of those disadvantages are, but I thought better to start off with a cartoon rather than uh, hitting you with research right away. So here we have Donna, uh, and she's concerned that she might be passed over for promotion if management learns she's pregnant. And being passed over for promotion is a common kind of disadvantage that mothers experience in the workplace. So Donna decides to take matters into her own hands and has developed this fascination with 19th century hoop dresses. So in other words, let's hide the fact. Um, so what I want us to think about today is whether we can do better than this. That is, rather than ha ask individual people to try to solve a problem, whether organizational policy or law might be able to um, change the environment in which a person like Donna um, was being uh, evaluated. So uh, what I want to do in uh, about 35 or 40 minutes of talking to you today uh, is to review some of the uh, literature on the motherhood wage penalty and the caretaker wage penalty, the kind of wage penalties that people experience. And then I'll talk about some of the work that I've done to try to understand how these disadvantages come about. What are the mechanisms that produce the disadvantages, okay? Uh, and then I'm going to be talking about some new work that I've done that looks at the role of law and the way that law might reduce some of the biases that I've drawn out for you. 
um, and I'll show you some of those results, and then I'll end kind of speculating about the, uh, the way that voluntary organizational policies, things that companies do to help people balance work and family, how, how those might be useful. Um, Hannah asked me before if uh, yeah, I wanted to take questions during or at the end, and I told her I didn't care. Um, but the one thing is, is, as you may have already picked up on, I talk really fast. So if you want to ask me a question, you just have to be a little heroic in your efforts, but I will stop <laughs> and to take questions. Okay, so uh, the motherhood wage penalty, there's, there is a lot of evidence now that shows that mothers earn less than otherwise equal uh, people who don't have children. So mothers earn less than men, um, whether or not those men have children, and employed mothers earn less than childless women. And these disadvantages that we find here uh, persist even in statistical models that have really just an arsenal of statistical controls, controlling for things like human capital factors, kind of education and things that people have, workplace factors, the type of jobs people have, their tenure on the jobs. You control for you know, everything you can think of and you get this wage penalty, and it's not trivial. It turns out it's about five to seven percent per child, okay? So there's a wage penalty that mothers um, face. Now, fathers don't generally experience a wage penalty. Um, but there is some evidence that for both men and women, um, if, if fathers were to sort of go beyond just being a breadwinner and do things like take family leave, that they do experience disadvantages. So um, one study of 26,000 uh, managers at a financial services firm found that for both men and women, taking family leave was associated with lower salaries and a lower likelihood of promotion. Um, here in our own world of academia, um, um, uh, one study shows that this stop-the-clock tenure policies that a lot of universities have that allow people to uh, have an extra year on their tenure clock, um, that this has a more negative effect on salaries if people take that leave for family reasons than if they were to take the exact same amount of leave for things like uh, research interruptions or personal illness. There seems to be something about caretaking that's producing these penalties. Now, in my own work, um, as I read this literature and sort of see that these penalties endure, um, even with just an amazing amount of controls, you know, you start to think, huh, maybe it's not so much that mothers are different than other kind of workers or that leave takers are so different from other kind of workers. Maybe what's going on, or at least part of what's going on, is that there is some sort of bias against mothers and caretakers um, in the workplace. And so this is, uh, this is what I started exploring um, and have been, and worked on for, um, for quite a bit of time. And I want to talk about sort of two ways that this, this, these kinds of biases come about. Um, and so two different mechanisms. If we want to reduce bias, it's really important that we understand not just that it occurs, but how it occurs. So I'm going to be calling these uh, what I'll call status-based discrimination and also normative discrimination. Okay, so I'll say a little bit about each and show you some of the um, evidence in regard to them. But basically, status-based discrimination is going to be based on um, stereotypes about what groups of people are like, descriptive stereotypes. So in, in, this, in the case of mothers, there's a pretty strong stereotype that mothers are less committed to their job than other kinds of workers, okay? And as you might imagine, that's not a good thing to be thought of as less committed to your job. So this is going to create problems. Normative discrimination, by contrast, is based on stereotypes about how people should be, okay? These are the should elements that make them normative. And so here, the relevant stereotypes are going to be the enduring beliefs that mothers should be committed to their children, first and foremost, even if they're working, where fathers should be committed to paid work, even if they have children, okay? So this is going to lead to another form of bias. So let me just say a little bit about <coughs> each of them, show you some evidence in regard to them, and then we'll talk about how we might undermine these biases, okay? So a status-based discrimination, um, the basic idea here is that motherhood and caregiving in general operate as what scholars have called a diffuse status characteristic, much the same way that race and gender operate in the workplace. Um, and so what happens here with these, these kinds of characteristics are associated with these beliefs that people are sort of less committed or less competent at their job, 
And what this does is it leads evaluators to judge mothers and caretakers by a stricter performance standard, okay? So they more critically scrutinize their performance. Um, not surprisingly, if you're having your performance more uh, carefully scrutinized, what this means is that mothers and caretakers come to be seen as less competent and less committed workers. So holding constant their actual level of competence and commitment, they're seen as less competent and committed which leads them um, to, to be offered fewer organizational rewards. Another way of thinking about this is that uh, mothers and, uh, and caregivers violate what Joan Williams has called, or appear to violate what Joan Williams has called the ideal worker norm, that norm that, you know, that, pe that workers should be there you know, on the job all the time, day in and day out with no breaks, okay? So people regard mothers with suspicion in regard to that. Um, so, um, so let me just tell you some evidence um, in, that, that supports this idea of status-based discrimination, this type of bias. And I'm going to show you a couple of different pieces of data, but I'll start by talking a little bit about some work I did um, that said it was an experimental study. Um, and basically what we did is we conducted an experiment where people evaluated two applicants for a job, okay? They either evaluated a mother and a childless woman, okay, or a father and a, a childless man, okay? And before we started this experiment, what we did is we created, um, you know, resumes and performance evaluations for these people, and we um, pre-tested those materials, okay? So with no names on them, none of the children, um, we pre-tested those materials. And what we, uh, until we, and we did this until we got the materials such that there was, nobody saw any differences between them, okay? So we created two people that were, according to their occupational relevant material, were equivalently qualified. We add the names, give them a gender, okay? We add uh, a mention down in the resume that one of these people is an officer in a parent-teacher association. So we subtly mark that this person's a mother and that this person's a father, okay? And so what we want to see is does adding this information um, change how these people were evaluated? I'll show you some data, but the answer to that question is yes, it does. Um, so um, here what we have table, uh, mothers compared to childless women, fathers compared to childless men. Um, down here, um, we asked them, would you recommend this person for hire? 84% of our childless women were recommended for hire, but only 47% of um, our mothers, okay? And so pre-testing, we saw absolutely no difference in who they recommend. Now you see this rather large difference. If they were going to hire them, they were going to pay them significantly and substantially less as well. Um, fathers here don't experience um, a penalty, okay? If anything, whenever we find a, a difference between fathers and childless men, the fathers are advantaged, so they're offered uh, here higher um, starting salaries. Now, status-based discrimination comes about when we see people as less competent and committed, okay? And that's in fact what we find here. Our mothers were seen as less committed and less competent on their jobs, um, or less competent employees, whereas fathers were actually seen as more committed um, to, uh, to uh, their job. And then finally, we wanted to see, you know, how people were understanding sort of behavior. Um, and so we asked, if this, how many times could this person be late to work before they would just no longer seem like management material to you, okay? And mothers are being allowed significantly fewer days late. It's as if the, uh, the attendance problem of a mother um, signals something uh, more than it does when, uh, when a childless woman engages in the same behavior. Fathers, by contrast, were um, allowed actually more days for being late, okay? Now, this study was done with, this is an experimental study, it was done with a college student samples that always makes you wonder, like, what would some quote-unquote real people do? Um, and so, uh, I just mentioned two more pieces of information that show that these results actually um, are found similarly when you have other kinds of people doing the evaluation. So in our same paper, we did an audit study where we sent out the, um, the resumes to actual companies that were hiring. 
um, and monitored whether or not those companies called our people back. And what we found is that, that women without children were twice as likely to be called back as were um, equally qualified mothers. So, you know, not only it's the same finding we found with the student sample and about the same magnitude. Okay, so that's a, that's a large difference to be twice as likely. And then a really interesting study of a very different, they say a very different kind of method from Vicki Schultz. Um, she's a lawyer. She was analyzing discrimination cases uh, for people who brought cases forward that they had been discriminated against because they had children. And what they, these cases, uh, what she finds is that employers would say, when being deposed, that they didn't consider the woman with a child for um, promotion because they assumed she wasn't interested in advancement. Okay, so again, indicating they don't think she's as committed, she's not interested in advancement. And the really kind of um, depressing thing about this is it, it turns out the courts are actually really receptive to this argument, okay? So, um, but anyway, so some evidence of status-based discrimination against mothers. Let me just mention a little bit about caretakers in general. What about fathers? We don't usually find disadvantages for fathers, as I just showed you. However, when fathers step out of that breadwinning role um, and do things like take family leave, they too experience disadvantages. So um, experimental work has shown that both men and women who take family leave are rated as poorer organizational citizens, if you will, and judged to be less successful. Interestingly, this penalty is greater for men than it is for women. And it's especially greater for men when men are being evaluated by other men, okay? So men raiders are especially hard on men who take family leave. Likewise, if we look, there's qualitative evidence in regard to this too, interviews of employers that finds that employers assume that once a woman has a child, she's no longer as committed to her job as she was before. So uh, quite a lot of evidence of this uh, in, in support of status discrimination, this form of discrimination that comes about because people think mothers and caretakers are uh, less competent and less committed to their work. The second form of discrimination we're going to have to contend with here is something that, uh, that my co-author and I called normative discrimination, okay? Normative discrimination is based on those stereotypes that mothers should prioritize family over work and men should prioritize uh, work over family, so be breadwinners. And what we predicted in some of our work is that when these prescriptions are violated, when people violate these norms, um, what's going to happen is, uh, is they're going to be less liked, okay? They're going to be seen as less warm, less likable, and more what psychologists call interpersonally hostile. This is a, a composite that includes a whole suite of negative um, attributes that you wouldn't probably want describing you, like selfish, intimidating, and arrogant, okay? Um, and so our argument was here, if you violate these, you're going to be seen as less warm and less likable, and because of this, um, you're going to be offered fewer organizational rewards, be less likely to hire, be offered lower salaries and the like. So it's a different way of getting to this same disadvantage. And um, how we came about to do this study, this is my colleague Steve Menard. We had done that pr previous paper I just told you about, and Steve said to me, well, you know, the problem that we found is that, you know, people thought that mothers weren't very committed to their jobs. What if mothers just worked really, really, really hard? I mean, it would be unfair to ask a mother to do that, but what if she worked really hard and was kind of always there for her work? Would this overcome this motherhood penalty? Okay, can you kind of work your way out of it? So we, we, we did that same experiment I just told you about, but this time we added to our employees' files um, performance reviews that had statements like this here. One of the most productive employees our division has hired in recent memories. She works late nights and weekends. She's always there. So we included all this stuff here. We thought, you know, if we rule out any possible doubt that this woman is truly committed to her job, can we get rid of that status discrimination? And the good news is, yes, we did get rid of that status discrimination, okay? So these mothers who display these especially high levels of workplace commitment were judged to be equally competent and committed um, as their childless peers, okay? So that's the good news. But, okay, here's the normative part. They were simultaneously judged as more selfish, more arrogant, dominating, less warm, and likable than mothers whose workplace commitment was more ambiguous. 
Consequently, they were offered fewer organizational rewards. So this is my you can't win slide, right? I mean, before the problem was you weren't very confident committed, you solved that problem, but now this problem to the same end result, okay? Fathers in our, um, our, fathers in our study that displayed this kind of heroic commitment to work suffered none of these warmth or likability uh, penalties. People liked them just as much as they had liked the other kinds of dads. Okay, so this was unique to mothers. Um, other evidence uh, uh, also shows this, that, that people who conform to norms are generally more liked than people who don't. So mothers in the workplace, uh, Amy Cuddy from the Harvard Business School has shown that mothers in the workplace are judged to be less warm than equally qualified childless women, whereas fathers um, are judged to be warmer, okay? So breadwinning fathers are um, judged to be warmer. And then um, some really cool work by Casey Albertson, who I've been doing a lot of work with lately, uh, shows that, that uh, employers believe men shouldn't take very much family leave, if, if any, and sort of try to and try to dissuade them from doing so. And I'll just share a quote. She so she has these interviews with employers, and these th this is a guy that she's interviewing. He, he was trying to take his FMLA leave, which is he's federally entitled to. Okay, so it's not like he's asking to go on vacation. Okay, he's trying to take his fam his his leave. Uh, this is, this is twelve weeks of leave that he would be guaranteed. And his employer tells him it's okay for you to take a week off, maybe a week and a half, but let's not go crazy here. Um, as if, you know, sort of taking that leave would have been going crazy. So we sort of this sort of sanctioning of men um, e for even trying to take the most uh, minimal time off. Okay, so um, how I like to think about uh, the, the processes I've drawn out for you, the sort of the combined effect of status discrimination and normative discretion, discrimination is to think of this as what I like, a, a collision of two norms, okay? And that is this, because stereotypic expectations um, raise doubts about uh, mother's workplace competence and commitment, Mothers and, and men who take family leave appear, appear to be um, violating this ideal worker norm, that a worker should be there you know, all the time for their employer. But mothers who you know, work these heroic hours to try to overcome doubts about their um, workplace commitment now violate a gendered norm, okay, that mothers should prioritize family over paid work. Okay? So as a result, what this means is that mothers are either viewed as less competent and committed or they're seen as less warm or likable, but either way, they end up with fewer organizational rewards, okay? Fathers don't usually experience this collision of two norms, except until they step outside of the breadwinning role, and at that point, appear to be violating both the ideal worker norm and the gendered norm uh, about prioritizing uh, work over family, and that's when, they, uh, that's when they experience these disadvantages. So that, what that means is that only breadwinning fathers escape these two forms of discrimination that I've laid out for you. So that's a very depressing um, uh, point to get to. Um, and so we're gonna now turn to thinking about what can be done here. And to me, as I put this together and think about it, um, to make progress, what this means is that we've got to change the norms that are governing the workplace somehow. That ideal worker norm are these gendered norms about prioritizing um, work versus prioritizing family. That's what we've got to do, okay? Uh, now, that's easy to say and not easy to do, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about some ideas that I have uh, about how we might do this. And I should say, um, Hannah talked a little bit about you know, my earlier work. I, I spent my career since I started to graduate school kind of mapping out all the ways that women are disadvantaged in the workplace. That gets kind of depressing after a while. So I decided I'd start trying to think about how we could turn these things over, and so this is some of my uh, newer attempts to do that. So I first want to look at law, okay, and whether family-friendly laws can change norms. Okay, and um, I'm going to argue that law can, okay, and show you some evidence, but there are reasons um, to be doubtful of that claim up front. Um, I, I came into it with a bit of doubt myself. I mean, for one, the, the biases that I've just drawn out for you are very subtle, so they'd be hard to prove via the legal system. 
And even if we could, they would be subjected to the same kind of objections that we have for any kind of discrimination law. That is, under, under enforcement is problematic, making these sort of top-down approaches less effective than we would like, especially in the United States. And that legal prohibitions um, could face backlash if they attempt to change deep-seated normative beliefs, like perhaps the, the roles of mothers and fathers. But as I was thinking about this and starting this project, I thought there's reasons to be hopeful. And here um, I was sort of drawing on my own background as a social psychologist, but also um, uh, on some really cool literature that I found from uh, the law and society area of sociology from the 60s and 70s. And it's always fun to go back and read this really old stuff. And basically, in this literature, they argue that law affects society not only through punitive sanctions, okay, but also through its symbolic or expressive effects, okay. And the idea here is that law implies a social consensus. So when we hear what a law is, it sort of says to us, this is the consensus um, in our society. It implies a social consensus that a particular conduct is wrong or not wrong. And this consensus, as we know very well from social psychology, implied consensuses can influence how people make moral judgments and also can influence their behavior. So if law, can if law is seen as a consensual, it can have this effect. One example they love to give in this old literature is that people refrain from murdering people they don't like, not only because they fear getting in trouble for murdering people, but because murder um, you know, is morally reprehensible as, as described to us uh, via the law. It's kind of a cute example. Um, more, uh, more uh, just to drill down a bit more, to, to me the conclusion that, that I take from this is that law can actually change the meaning of a behavior and with it people's moral evaluations of that behavior. So if you think about something like uh, drinking and driving, for example, I mean, look back in the 50s, there's like pictures of magazines of people drinking and driving, like high society people, and people didn't seem to think that was a bad thing. You know, I think we've seen a lot of change on that and that laws had part to do with that, Hannah. Can I ask you a question? There's a little bit of a chicken and egg issue mm -hmm. around laws, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So if they're created by our legislatures mm -hmm. who are politically elected, to some extent, these, got, these people are motivated by I mean, to what extent do, do social norms motivate politicians to create laws? Right. And are there good examples where politicians get out ahead? It's of a, you know, I think you do sort of see, uh, you do, you, there, there's certainly a loop here, right? If, if a law, I mean, this whole literature is couched in the, um, uh, in the condition that if law is seen as a legitimate authority. So if we think about prohibition, for example, I mean, nobody thought that was a, a legitimate law and it did not have this effect. Uh, you know, I think s some of the early laws in states over gay marriage, for example, there was a lot of backlash, uh, you know, against that because it, it didn't seem consensual to people at that point in time. It seemed like these activist judges were doing things, um, you know, to us. Um, so there, I think there has to be, you know, enough actual support that, that, the, that the law can be passed. But I think what the law does is it makes it seem like there's even more support than there probably is, which allows further progress. So I think it's it very much iterative. Okay. Uh, good question. Okay. But if this, if this is the case, if law can have these effects, then um, that, that if we were to have a law that prohibited people from penalizing people who took parental or family leave, the argument would be that this should reduce negative judgments of leave takers and also re reduce those penalties that they face in terms of salaries and things like that. So I'm going to show you some evidence in regard to this. And what I'm going to be doing um, is uh, in an experiment exposing people to the Family Medical Leave Act, okay, which is um, the family leave law we have in the United States. Uh, it was passed in 1993. It's a federal law. Um, it is, um, you know, it's, it's the laughing stock of um, you know, family laws, if you look at things comparatively, right? Um, because it provides 12 weeks of, I should put this in bold, unpaid um, leave. Most countries have paid leave. Uh, 12 weeks of unpaid leave, 
uh, for people for family and medical reasons. And to be eligible for this, you have to have worked for your employer for at least 12 months in a location that employs 50 or more workers. So if you put these two bullet points together, uh, lots of people are not covered by this law because they don't meet this requirement. And even those that are, aren't really effectively covered because they can't afford that pay leave, okay? But nonetheless, what we're gonna argue here is that um, if this argument about the expressive role of law is right, even a weak law like this one can do some good, okay? So, um, we, what we expect is that since this law grants leave benefits, we're think, we think it's gonna be especially uh, effective at reducing the biases that leave takers um, experience, but we also think it should be useful for helping reduce some of the biases that mothers who don't take leave um, experience as well, because the law speaks broadly to the right of both men and women to um, participate both in family and in paid work. Okay, so there's two different, uh, there's two different empirical projects that um, evaluate this argument together. Um, one is an, uh, an experiment with an with underground <coughs> sample, and the other is a, uh, a more restricted experiment with a broader um, sample of the population. I'm only gonna show you the results with the um, undergraduate participants today. The results are qualitatively the same. You draw the same conclusion from either study. This one has more variables and things for us to look at. So I'm gonna show you uh, this one. So basically what we do is we have um, our participants rate three employees, okay, based on paper files. And these files contain a resume, a strong performance evaluation, and a description of the company where people work and its benefits, okay? All three, so if you're in the study, you get three employees. All three of the employees that you would see are of the same gender. So you're either gonna see three men or three women. They all work for the same firm, okay? So whatever the firm's benefits are, everybody you know, is at the same firm. And they're all equally qualified with the same length of time on the job. And so we know this through pretesting, okay, that they're equally qualified. Um, one of the three people that you would see is a leave taker. It's a person who's taken three weeks, I'm sorry, 12 weeks of family leave, what the Family Medical Leave Act would entitle them to. Another is a parent who did not take leave. And the third is a childless person, okay? So you're rating each of these three people. And then what we do in the experiment is we randomly assign people um, to um, a condition, uh, one of six conditions, where um, that crosses employee gender, so you're rating all men or all women, with one of three different kinds of organizations. Okay, that's the key distinction here, is these three different kinds of organizations. Over here on the far right, we have the FMLA condition. So what happens in this experiment, in this condition, is before you rate the employees, you read about the Family Medical Leave Act, okay, um, and learn that the company is covered by that along with other things. So you're, we make this salient to people. Over here on the far uh, left is what we'll call the no policy condition. This is a condition where um, you read about the firm and its benefits, but there's no mention of anything that has to do with family leave. Okay, so this is our control condition, if you will. And then we have a condition called organizational policy condition. And here, what we do is before rating people, you read about a company's voluntary policy, okay? A policy um, that allows parents to ask their employer if they can take some time off, and if the employer grants it, they can have time off from their job. So it's a voluntary um, sort of policy. It's a very common um, kind of policy you find in most firms today that have any policy at all. And here, what we're wanting to do is to see whether um, you know, any kind of family policy would do or if there's something unique about law. Okay, um, so then you look at the three applicants and, um, and you rate them on three dimensions. Um, organizational rewards, we ask people to recommend a raise for the person, okay? We ask how promotable the person seems, okay? Um, this is a dummy variable where the, uh, where the one category is certainly will be promoted, okay? So either certainly will be promoted or something else. Um, then we try to measure the various mechanisms of discrimination that I talked about earlier using scales that we used before, confidence and commitment, or warmth and interpersonal hostility. So, uh, so you see these three people, you learn about their firm, and you rate them. 
Okay, so what we expect to find here is that when there's no policy in place, leave takers, whether they're men or women, um, will uh, experience a bias and decreased occupational rewards. We also expect that based on past work that I've done that mothers, whether or not they've taken leave, will experience a penalty. And we, and we expect that these biases um, and decreased rewards will not be present when FMLA is salient. This is gonna signal this broad consensus is gonna undermine the production of bias. Um, I don't have a strong, I didn't go into this with a strong prediction about voluntary organizational policies. Um, uh, and so, you know, I sort of kind of went in thinking they don't seem as broadly consensual to me as a law, uh, but we'll see how they do. I'm gonna show you that result and I'll end by speculating about what's going on. So I'm gonna show you four tables, okay, for the people in the room who like numbers. If you don't, I'll just tell you what they, tell you what we're finding here. Um, for it, what, and what these tables are gonna be, they're very simple regression models where type of employee is predicting our, um, our variables. So here, type of employee is, effect, is predicting, in this case, how much raise people would recommend. Um, and so what we're doing is comparing a parent to a childless person and a leave taker to a childless person. We have a separate model for men employees and women employees, since each of our participants rated either three men or three women. Um, for people who care about such things, we clustered the standard errors on participant ID because you're evaluating three um, employees. That's not independent. Um, and I'm gonna what I'm going to do with the tables is I'm going to show you the results for this no policy condition. What happens when no policy is in place? And I'll just tell you what happened in the other two conditions so you don't have to look at 12 tables. Okay, so uh, even people like to look at tables, that's a bit much, right? Um, okay, so um, what we find here, uh, this row, leave taker, in bold, I put our significant findings. What we find here um, is that um, if you compare leave takers to childless employees, what you see is that leave takers are um, offered about $1,000 lower raise than childless employees who are equivalently qualified. Significant for women, marginally significant for men. Okay, so there seems to be a leave taker penalty here. We don't find a motherhood penalty, which is surprising to me because I've written a lot about a motherhood penalty. We would have expected this right here to be significant and negative, and it's neither. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'll return to that here shortly. Um, and the other thing to note is that um, the models predicting things for women employees are always going to be more predictive than the ones for men. It's as if people are drawing more on information about parental status and leave status um, when making judgments about women employees compared to men. Okay? So this is no policy condition. You see somewhere you see kind of a leave taker penalty here. What happens in the other two conditions? Well, when FMLA is made salient, for the people who read about FMLA, that raise penalty is completely eliminated. Okay, so it, it does remove that. Uh, that does remove that uh, that penalty. And for men, it actually um, things kind of flip around, and leave-taking men now actually have a moderately positive uh, benefit in terms of their raise. So FMLA gets rid of that disadvantage, if you will, and so does organizational policy here. So they they both kind of got rid of the penalty that was found with no policy in place. Yes, sir. Describe make made salient. Made salient, what that means is that they, they were in that condition where they read about the law prior to rating the employees. So you're just sort of having, you're saying, look, this company is covered by FMLA, here's what the deal is with it, and they read about it. Just reading, just yeah, educating. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, which is, that's, which is important in its own right, you know. Um, okay, um, similar kind of table, but now what we're looking at is um, whether or not the person would be seen as promotable, okay? Uh, this is a, 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 a binary variable, so this is a logistic regression, uh, but nonetheless, um, Let's go ahead and just uh, look at what the results are. If you look, there are no significant results here for men, okay? So men who took leave, men who were parents, didn't experience any disadvantages. So while we saw that leave-taking fathers were disadvantaged in terms of the raise they were offered, it did not extend to long-term judgments about their promotability. But for women, it does, okay? Um, this, so uh, leave-taker 
women compared to childless women are experiencing, um, they're seen as less promotable. And if we invert that odds ratio, how you could interpret it is that childless women were seen as eight times more promotable than were equivalent women who had taken leave. So that's a rather large effect there. Again, we see no uh, motherhood penalty. It's a, this is a, we expect this to be significant negative. It's negative, but it's not significant. Uh, in all my past work, you know, women who don't take leave experience bias. Um, I think what's going on there is just an artifact of the design. In all the past studies, people were comparing two employees, um, a mother and a childless person. Here we've got a third one in the mix, and I think probably the salient distinction to people is this leave-taking business. Um, we've got a small study going to try to see if that's right. Okay, what about FMLA and organizational policy? Well, again, when FMLA was made salient, that promotion penalty for women went away. And that, it was a large penalty, so I think that's quite remarkable. Organizational policy, not quite as good. When, that, when people were described as working for a company that had a voluntary organizational policy, a moderately significant promotion penalty uh, remains. Um, odds ratio about 0.25, which means that childless women are about uh, four times more likely to be seen as uh, promotable. So they kind of cut it in half but didn't get rid of it. Um, now let's just look at these sort of mechanisms of discrimination. Are, uh, are um, uh, leave takers and, and mothers seen as um, less um, competent and committed to their jobs? And again here we see nothing for our men employees, okay? So be, taking leave uh, or being a parent did not affect people's uh, judgments of how competent or committed um, our, uh, our employees were, but there were effects for women, okay, if you look over in these models. Uh, what you see here, leave taker, leave taker, let's try to look at these two rows simultaneously, significant and negative, significant and negative. Uh, what this means is that leave takers, compared to childless women, were seen as being less competent and less committed to their jobs. Okay? Here, this is, these are mothers who didn't take leave. Mothers who didn't take leave were also seen as less committed to their jobs. So there was some sort of a motherhood penalty here, but they were simultaneously seen as more competent. So again, the motherhood results uh, for mothers who didn't take leave uh, are uh, a, little, uh, a little unusual. The good news here, both FMLA and organizational policy eliminated these biases, those biases in terms of how competent and committed people uh, were seen. Um, and they did this both for, um, both for leave takers, but also took away that sort of negative uh, commitment rating of mothers who had not taken leave. And finally, to get at uh, normative discrimination, um, now we want to look and see how um, you know, warm and hostile people seem. Um, and so uh, here, the take-home message of this table is basically people who conform to gender norms are liked, okay, and people who don't aren't, okay? Um, how do you see that? Um, well, if we look first for men, um, th this here, uh, this is comparing parent, uh, men who didn't take leave to childless men. This is the breadwinning dad. The breadwinning dad is seen as warmer. This is a significant positive. He's seen as warmer than his childless counterpart, okay? And he's seen as marginally less hostile compared to his childless counterpart. So we like the breadwinning dad. For um, women, what you see is the leave-taking woman is seen as warmer than the childless woman. Okay, so you know that leave-taking woman was seen as less competent, less committed, less promotable, and less deserving a raise. But we like her. Yeah, so that's a <laughs> congeniality uh, effect here again. Uh, reward. Um, and down here, what we see is that mothers who didn't take leave when it was available at their company are seen as more hostile compared to childless women. So as if they're not availing themselves of a policy that they should be. Okay, um, what about FMLA and organizational policy? Um, FMLA um, eliminated the penalties that the female leave takers uh, experienced. Okay, so that was removed. It also it, uh, eliminated the penalty that the, for the mothers who don't take leave, that hostility penalty, it, it removed that as well. Um, 
And so, you know, for women, uh, it really uh, improved things. For fathers, you know, they were seen as, those breadwinning fathers were seen as warmer and more likable. That endures, okay? FMLA did not remove sort of that bonus that these fathers, uh, these fathers get. But the penalties for mothers went away. Organizational <coughs> policy um, here fared less well. Okay, um, when this po organizational policy was made salient, mothers who didn't take leave continued to be seen as more hostile, and female leave takers continued to be seen as warmer. So both of those female effects are still found when organizational policy is made salient. So it's not doing the same thing for us that law is. And then, and very surprising to me, a new form of bias emerged, a form of bias that we did not find when FMLA was made salient, we didn't even find in the control condition, and that is this. Um, fathers who took leave now, who actually took advantage of that policy, were now seen as more hostile, okay? Research finds that employers don't think men should take family leave. I had a quote up about that earlier. Um, and try to actively dissuade them from doing so. And here I think we see this effect with our raiders um, as well. Could you yeah. unpack hostile again? Hostile is being seen as selfish, deviant, dominating. Um, and so, you know, if you think about sort of the qualitative literature on uh, mothers in high-powered careers, you often find that, you know, mothers will say people make them feel like they're being selfish for working. Um, selfish is a component of that interpersonal hostility scale. Um, so it's about six, six items. I can't remember them all, but yeah, selfish, dominating. Um, I think it's because fathers that normatively are, ex are expected to be breadwinners, uh, putting work before family, and when you take family leave, you're visibly putting family higher up in the queue at least. So I think that's what's going on. From a corporate's point of view, that's hostile. We, uh, I mean, so, I'm sorry? From, from a corporate uh, position, that would be considered sort of outside the norm, and is that what makes it hostile? Yeah, I think, I mean, Generally, the literature on this variable, it's, I, I don't, this is the label that was given to it, this interpersonal hostility uh, variable, generally shows that when people violate gender norms, this is the way they're viewed. So, um, so this is what you would expect for women who don't take leave and for men who do, okay, because they're not conforming um, to those gendered expectations. Okay, let me just summarize the experiment and conclude on the rule of law, and then I want to say a little bit more about organizational policy, okay, otherwise we leave ourselves in kind of a like, what to do about that. Uh, so what we see is that, yes. Can I go back to hostile for a minute? Yeah. It's kind of interesting, I mean, I don't know if this is the interpretation, but if it, hostile is kind of, it's, it's hard tag to hold in your head because it's not, it seems like there should be a target. It's not necessarily, but um, but anyways, if you go back to like selfish and deviant, mm -hmm. what's kind of interesting about it is it suggests that like the guy is being selfish, or like disloyal mm -hmm. in essence. Like the woman's being disloyal to family mm -hmm. by working, mm -hmm. and the guy is supposed to be prioritizing work, and he's being disloyal to work. Exactly. By, exactly. It's a good way of putting so it. Very, so it's it's like their their um, you know their their other directedness is is supposed to be pointing in different directions, and mm -hmm. so when you violate that. Yeah. You know, when you, when you aren't other-directed in the way that's normatively expected, mm -hmm. you are then self-centered and not exactly. serving. Exactly. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I think, I think it's exactly true. Yeah. I was wondering if you could put the time lapse. Um, so the more the person, the more the female has been working in the organization, the less likely she will be seeing a lot of That would be the that'd be the prediction. We don't hear in this study. All of our employees had been at their, with the firm for seven years, um, so they had all had you know plenty of time to establish a, a good track record. Um, but, um, you know, it's it's interesting. The case law on this um, does show that when uh, women have children, that people's the, the the judgments that are made of them can switch on a dime. Even though people thought they were perfectly good before, it's like all of a sudden now you're not going to be the committed employee. 
But I think you're exactly right. If we were to vary the amount of time someone's been at work, you would expect these effects to be less the longer you're there. The longer you're there, the more you have a chance to sort of show, to prove yourself, if you will. Okay, so um, just to summarize this, so FMLA consistently uh, eliminated the penalties um, and organizational policies often reduced the penalties, but the results were less consistent here, and we actually saw this sort of new form of bias that emerged when a voluntary organizational policy was in place. And I'm gonna return to that here shortly because I wanna think about how we can do better than that. So just to conclude about the role of law, I think you know what I was arguing in this study is providing some preliminary evidence too, is to the extent that law is thought to represent a social consensus, it can affect the meaning of behavior, like taking family leave, and the judgments of individuals in regard to that behavior. And so the encouraging thing for me here, and I haven't had much encouraging findings in my work, so I love this one, um, is that even a very limited law that's weakly enforced, like the Family Medical Leave Act, um, has the potential to promote gender equality, okay? Now, that's the good news, but we might stop and think about why wasn't organizational policy more effective? And I think this is a really important question to ask um, in the United States where we're tend to be less into top-down laws and wanting companies to solve problems. Um, so why wasn't it more effective? And you know what might we do here? And so here, uh, here my thought is this. The kinds of policy we had in this experiment, which maps onto the kind of policies that you see in actual companies, are what we might call individual accommodation policies, okay? Um, if you are gonna have a child, you go to your employer and say, I would like to take advantage of the family leave policy. They look and see what's going on at work and say, okay, yes or, or no, you cannot, okay? Um, Phyllis Moan calls these mother may I policies. You have to go in and kind of ask for them. And these kind of policies then, if you think about it, are, are not very broadly consensual, right? They don't affect all workers. They're not automatically granted. Instead, rather than representing a broad social consensus, these policies are, are much more narrow accommodations for individual workers who have a specific need at a specific time to take time off for work, okay? As such, these policies don't change those norms, which I think are really key to what's going on. They don't change the ideal worker norm, and they don't change the gendered norm about parenting. Indeed, the majority of people who take leave are mothers. Lots of companies only have maternity policies, not parental leave policies. That keeps that gender norm intact. And by saying, here, you over there, you will make the special accommodation for you, um, we leave intact the idea that the ideal committed worker is the person who's always there. And these other people are over here on the so-called mommy track, this devalued track, okay? Um, and so it, it doesn't affect these norms, okay? So if we're going to make progress with organizational policy, I think we've got to think about um, how we can do uh, better. So I'll just end by talking a little bit about what organizations might do. Um, how, uh, you know, how is it that we um, can do better? And um, what, what I'll say is that in spite of the limits that I've drawn out for you, I do think that there, there is a way out here. If we can think about how to um, change our policies so that they too signal a broad consensus. Um, and so what we need are policies that are more deeply cultural, and I'll give an example of that here shortly, that change the norms that govern the workplace, okay? Um, norms, as we know, are uh, widely shared beliefs, okay? So what we're up against here in the case of work and family is these norms define for us who is a good and productive worker and who should be spending time with family and who should be spending time at work. And so uh, I'll, I'll explain why there's, this is not a, a mistake slide. I'll explain what I, why it's here uh, shortly. Um, my, my conclusion from this is if we simply accommodate the periodic needs of people to take time away from work, 
what we without changing these norms, what we do is we tee up, and I'm going to use tee like golf here, we tee up any employee whose workplace commitment um, is viewed with suspicion for discrimination. And this includes all mothers, okay, and any father who takes family leave. When I say we tee them up for discrimination, if you play golf, right, you put the ball on the tee, it's easier to see, it's easier to hit, it's right there for you, that our individual accommodation policies are doing that. They're boldly signaling uh, who's not an ideal worker, okay, um, and gendering who takes family leave. So to change these norms, we're going to, have to, to, to make more effective policy, we're going to have to change these norms. And so that's, of course, easier to say than and do. How can we do that? How can we change these ideal worker norms and these gender norms? Well, we need to, we're going to need to, I think, um, redefine what it means to be a good and productive worker for all employees. And we need policies that are designed around the principle that all workers, not just mothers, um, have responsibilities outside of work. Okay? And finally, we're going to need policies that recognize that productive work can occur outside of the traditional workday and outside of the physical workplace. What I'm saying is we need to change the norms about time and place when it comes to work. Okay? As Phyllis Nunn likes to say, work should be a verb, not a place. Um, and if we do that, um, that, I think we're going to make some progress. Now, that's, uh, that's very abstract, so I want to just uh, I'll conclude with a, a concrete um, example that comes from the work of Aaron Kelly and uh, Phyllis Moan. Um, at the Best Buy corporate headquarters, okay. And this program, uh, this program is called this program is called Results Only Work Environment. Uh, you may have heard it. Um, and basically, what this program attempted to do is to change the culture at Best Buy's corporate headquarters from one that had previously valued FaceTime, like a lot of our workplaces do. You know, you show up. That's how we know you're a good worker. To one where all employees were based on results, evaluated based on results only. And they, it's a very deliberate attempt to change the culture. Um, the employees were involved in a series of uh, training sessions where they critically examined their existing culture and they practiced moving to this results-only culture. So, um, for example, they role-played, did other sorts of things, and you learned that it was no longer permissible to say, ask why someone wasn't at work or why you got here at 10 o'clock today, okay? Because that's not what mattered anymore. What mattered was results, okay? Um, so. Uh, so this kind of program is what I have in mind. It affects all workers. Everybody has work as uh, you know responsibilities outside the workplace. Everybody has a right to attend to those, um, and not, it's not just it's not just about mothers. It applies to all people. So it's broadly consensual in that same sort of way. So it signals a broad consensus. Now, oops. Um, uh, an evaluation of this program, I'll just tell you um, a little bit about it and then conclude. Uh, an evaluation of this program showed that this, this, role, this road change, um, which they rolled out for the entire company headquarters, um, was good for employees in a lot of ways. It increased their, their control over their, their, their perception that they had control over their workplace schedule. It, it, it reduced their work family conflict. It had all kinds of great health outcomes. Employees really liked it. And it didn't de decrease employee productivity at all. Okay? So it was, a, uh, it was a great program in that way. Now, this program was not rolled out to be a work-family program, okay? Notice it doesn't say anything about work-family on it, but it's the kind of program that I think has potential to actually reduce uh, the, uh, the disadvantages that mothers and other caregivers take. Uh, and it, but, but it does so by broadly changing um, the culture to include ideas that all people have responsibilities outside of work, much like the Family Medical Leave Act. All people have the right, all people that are covered, have the right uh, to, uh, to take time off for family. So I'll just speculate on the role of organizational policy here um, and what we might think about doing with, uh, with this last slide, which is 
um, is this, um, to the extent that this caretaker penalty that I draw, draw out for you comes about because space-type signals both a commitment to work and to a masculine breadwinning role, organizational policy sees that can reduce the association of FaceTime with productivity, like that road program, and the association of caregiving, caregiving with women will minimize the, uh, the caretaker penalty. So this is the way I think we can create broad consensus with voluntary organizational policies. So I'll stop there, and I'm happy to take any questions that you might have. So, uh, so tell me what you think a little bit more about, what would you predict about the, the cultural? Uh, so I think the cultural norm uh, tremendously varies, not only in Western culture, mm -hmm. but as well, um, Canada, United States, and Europe. And the norm about uh, breadwinning and caregiving? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I think there is more subtility, uh, subtility uh, not only within the organization, but within the role. Yeah. Yeah, so there, so there is, um, there's some really great um, studies on the motherhood wage penalty, okay, that wage penalty that mothers accrue uh, in, in a comparative context um, that, that, uh, that Michelle Budig and Julian Misra have done. And it, it actually, spe it speaks to both of the points you laid out there, so you probably really like this paper. Um, but basically, the motherhood wage penalty, you find it in uh, most developed countries, okay, um, and, but it varies in magnitude. So in some places, people, mothers, a really big wage penalty, in some places, it's quite small. And, um, and uh, federal policy that, that varies cross-culturally affects this in this way. Um, countries that have really long maternity leave tend to have really big penalties. Okay, they pull women out of the paid labor force for a very long time, and they probably um, worry employers who are thinking about hiring women. So, but countries that have very little family leave also have pretty big penalties. It turns out the sweet spot is to be in the middle. The countries that have these sort of moderate, um, moderate uh, family leaves are the ones that do the best, okay? Um, uh, childcare, providing free quality uh, childcare for young children, that simply everywhere reduces the motherhood wage penalty. That's, a, that's you know, we've done that cross-culturally. But to your, your question about the norms, that matters too. Um, so what they've done in their studies is to um, compare not only how these policies work, but how, the, how effective these policies are given the strength of the belief that mothers should stay home with their kids, okay? And in countries where uh, the belief is that mothers should stay home with their kids, having maternity leave doesn't help mothers much at all, okay? Whereas countries that have um, very weak beliefs that mothers should stay home with their kids, then, these, then uh, the maternal leave policies turn out to be quite effective. So you're absolutely right. It varies, uh, you know, the, the, the policies vary by country, okay? The effect of the policies vary depending on their, say, length, and all of them vary depending upon the uh, norms about uh, whether or not women with children should be working. Um, so, uh, good question. The United States, by the way, motherhood wage penalty is right in the middle of the pack in terms of its magnitude, okay? There's, there's <coughs> places where it's a lot worse, like West Germany, places where it's uh, almost non-existent, like Israel. Um, we're right in the middle, and you know I think that's because we, um, you know, we know that uh, having uh, you know there's, there, we, there, we're right in the middle. I think because we're doing absolutely nothing, and some of the things that we do make things worse, and some of the things we do make it better. And we're doing nothing really, so um, that puts us right in the middle of the pack. Uh, can you, can you work with just one question over here? 
size of the organization? Yeah, so the size of the organization um, is, I think, is going to matter in all kinds of complicated ways. First, the, uh, the law, in the United States at least, the FMLA law doesn't apply unless the organization has at least 50 employees. So that's, you know, um, I think that's going to matter. And generally, we see that the bigger the company, the, um, the, the less bad these effects are. So it does, it does vary the size of company. Carefully, this is great. Um, yeah, so um, we do we do find it's, it's an interesting finding um, is that uh, with on the normative stuff, okay, that that is the extent to which you penalize people who step out of the you know normative expectations that mothers prioritize uh, family and men prioritize work. On the normative expectations, um, what you find in my study and if you combine it with other people's studies um, is that people tend to people tend to uh, make harsher judgments within gender, okay? So that men raiders are harsher on men who take family leave, and women raiders are harsher on women who don't take family leave, okay? Um, so that's, so that's, that's, uh, so that's what we, the finding is there. And we could, we could speculate about why that is. And I've spent some time, I have a student that we're trying to develop a paper that gets at what that, the answer to that um, is, um, but uh, which, which is an argument I won't spend the rest of our time going into, but it's an argument that's basically uh, about um, you know, it's a, it's a bit about threat. In other words, if I'm a woman and feel like I'm having to choose between prioritizing work and family, and here, you know, and here you're, you know, uh, you're not taking family leave, I'm going to be harsher on you. And same with a man who feels like I don't get to spend enough time with my kids, and now here's this guy taking family leave. Maybe we're harsher in that way because it feels somewhat personally threatening to the own the judgments that we ourselves have been forced to make given the cultural constraints we operate under. But, um, but yeah, you're exactly right. That is a that is a, a finding of that study. And it does, it does not hold in this latest study. And I should say the larger finding in social psychology is that you generally don't find a gender of raider effect. When people are evaluating um, you know, employees, you don't find it in student populations, you don't find it in um, the random sample studies we do. You know, the most common thing is that men and women are equally biased, okay? Um, and um, you know we all live in the same culture, so that you know we're drawing on cultural beliefs. So I guess that makes sense. But there are unique conditions where um, you see that men are more biased than women, or women are more biased than men. And I'm very interested in what those conditions are because uh, if we can figure that out, I think it will have a lot of implications for how we structure work. It's it's really um, if if you with a finding that if you whenever you find a finding where women are harsher on women, um, that is it, it seems to. Um, it's harder to get the organization to do much about it. They're like, well, even if women are harsher on you know, women, what are we going to do? So I think it's, it's really important that we understand what the conditions are that are producing that. Yeah. Does it go the other way as well on that? Women, based on women who do take it, have you just looked at women rating women who don't take it? Have you looked at women rating women who do take we, and, well, in this particular study, we do both, and we don't find a gender difference there. The, the, the finding she's talking about is from a study I did in 2010, where what they were rating were women mothers who were working especially long hours. So they weren't taking family leave, and they weren't just not taking family leave, they were working you know, extreme schedules, if you will, and the women raiders were harder on those women than the men raiders were. The men raiders were hard on them too, it's not like they weren't, but it, the, the, the magnitude yeah, was great. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah.
You know, um, I, I, th I think that uh, I think that the an employer that resisted it for that reason would be um, misreading, um, or, or, or not really understanding what produces a stable work environment to begin with. Um, and that is, women who have we, we know that women take off more time um, than men do for children reasons. Okay, so women are gone um, there. Most women take very short maternity leaves here, so that's that's you know um, not anything much longer than a long vacation. But men take uh, or miss more for personal illness. So when you look at the relative absences of people in the workplace, you know, I think what happens is that when we're suspicious of a group, we really scrutinize their attendance, and we show that in some of our findings. So it, mothers appear to be gone uh, more than uh, men do. Um, we see this with race as well. I mean, I don't know if you remember the uh, FedEx lawsuit um, that was. Uh, uh, discrimination uh, against African-American employees and the employer uh, FedEx said we're not discriminating against African-Americans it's just that they tend to be late to work more often than white people are and so they go and they start watching and it's you know the, the, the African-American people were their tardy records were absolutely accurate I mean they were getting marked down every time they were tardy but the white employees when they walked in late, people were just not really noticing it. And so, um, you know, so it looked to them like the problem was the attendance of African-American employees, but that's because they were keying in on that group and not paying much attention to the group that they weren't suspicious of to begin with. So I think they'd be wrong about that. That doesn't mean you aren't right that they would think, they would think that and therefore would push back against these things. Um, what we do know, though, is if you don't take a short-term view of who's in the workplace, but you take a longer-term view, who do you retain, okay, which is really extremely important, right? Um, is that uh, work family policies, um, having good work family policies um, in, improves the retention um, for both men and women employees, women more than men. So, you know, you spend a lot of money hiring somebody and, you know, giving them a little bit of leave here and there will allow you to keep them long term. That probably would be a better way of looking at that. So when I do, when I work with companies on these things, what I find myself constantly trying to do is gently reshift how they're seeing what they think the problem is. Because you're right, that is how they imagine the problem and that is, um, you know, what they're resistant to. So, uh, my second question is related to that. Um, what about I mean, I think, yeah, I think, I, I, mean, I think you're exactly right. I think with hourly workers, um, you know, the employers see them as much more expendable. Retaining them is not uh, as important. They feel like they can replace them, um, you know, quite readily. They're, they're a little bit wrong. Uh, they're a little bit wrong about that. It does end up costing them, but, um, but not as much as it does, say, replacing a McKinsey consultant or something like that. Um, so that is, that is harder. Hourly jobs also tend to be uh, less flexible by design, right? Um, less control over schedule, um, which makes it uh, harder. And so when you read about um, the, studies, the studies on sort of balancing work and family um, for people at working class jobs, it is just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's like this tag team of people helping, you know. Um, there's a person, um, I can't remember her name right now, 
Lisa Dobson, does a great book on, um, on uh, balancing work and family and low-wage work. And she, has, she shows these mothers who like take their kid, uh, put them on the school bus, beg the school bus driver to make sure at the end of the day the kid gets back off at the correct stop. The bus driver's not supposed to do that, but he does it anyway. He could lose his job if people found this out. You know, on Monday, this person comes over and takes care of the kid. Tuesday, this person does. If any one of those people's sick, mother can't go to work, mother gets fired, has to find a new job. I mean, it's just, you know, a really, um, the, the balancing act, I think, would just stress me out of my mind if that's how I had to be able to manage my day. So I think it is much, much harder um, for low-wage work. And I think why it's so important that we have um, laws, especially for low-wage work. Um, my colleague, Katie Albertson, who I've been working on this law project with, that's been her big interest is to what extent can low-wage workers actually take their Family Medical Leave Act. You know, even if they, can if they can afford it, to what extent can they take it? Because employers seem to um, misunderstand that it is not um, it's not up to them to decide whether or not the person can take the law. I mean, these employers sort of say things like, well, now's not really a good time for you to take 12 weeks off. It's like, this is not vacation. This is like, this is, <laughs> I've allowed this by law, but there's a real misunderstanding there, and I think um, it's, it's much worse. And not surprisingly, the motherhood wage penalty um, is actually the largest for people who have just a high school degree. And I think it's because of some of the things that you've suggested. Can I ask, like, theoretically, mm -hmm. why it's important to disassociate caregiving with women to make this work, as opposed, like, why can't just caregiving be a feminized, low-status form of labor, and that's the theoretical problem, as opposed to it being associated with women? Um, I think, uh, I mean, that... That could be, but within, I, mean, I think within a give, to me the, the sort of underlying logic that I'm trying to run here is that we need sort of, we, we need sort of broad, things that are broadly consensual and affect, affect all workers and that the sort of more, the quickest, most practical way to get something done would be go in and say all workers have needs outside of the workplace, not just mothers. Um, which therefore means that mothers won't be as singled out. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I misunderstood. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're just saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which means that, uh, but if it's voted for a transitional state, right. most of the women are yeah. 
colleagues at Stanford who runs the Longevity Center um, there talks a lot about, you know, um, the fact that in the last hundred years we've added 30 years yeah. onto our life, exactly. life expectancy, and she says, but we, we're still living like we're going to die at 42, you know, <laughs> all the important career decisions and child decisions happen at the exact same time, and we put that entire 30 years on at the end of life, and we could try to think more broadly about the way to restructure lives, which I think is very nice, and I think is even harder than thinking about how to restructure workplaces. On the satisfaction stuff, we do see, for example, that this uh, this results-only work environment, other interventions like that, actually significantly decrease the stress that working mothers are facing. So I think there are things we can do um, to lessen that in our current environment, and, and here in particular, hmm, it's terrible. Um, but you were talking about over the, uh, over the life course, and it is the case, I mean, if you look at, um, there's several things I could say about that, but one, um, in the United States, at least, and I don't know the comparative data on this, but a short, when, if women take a short time, or men too, a short time off um, from paid work, this has consequences for lifetime earnings that are rather large. So if you take, even if motherhood only affected you when you were young and you took that time off, now you're back in the workforce, overall your lifetime earnings are still going to be affected. So that's a, that's a problem. The other thing that, um, and this is back to my days of just mapping out all the ways that women are disadvantaged, this is when I decided I needed to do something more positive, is this. I was mapping out when the motherhood wage, when, when, the, when women were no longer subjected to the motherhood penalty. Like at what age does that stop? What age is it where people no longer think your children might interfere with your ability to come to work when I want you to? And so we're working on this. And then I started reading the literature on age discrimination. Yeah. And women, um, women are seen as older earlier than men, okay? So I calculated there was about a three-year window between which motherhood no longer seemed to be, you know, how people saw you, and when you started to seem old, and therefore you were experiencing age bias. And at that point I thought, I need to work on solutions. This is just, you know, um, you know. but it is the case. I mean, anything that you read that um, is sort of saying to people, you know, when you talk to people in the corporate sector, professional women about this, what they want to know from me is not so much what this literature shows, but what should I do? You know, so, you know, or my graduate students say, so when should I have children? You know, when is it, you know, and um, the studies on this, I mean, if you, if you only care about that answer and not what's fair socially, the answer to that question is to have children as late as possible, yeah. okay? And of course, then you're running up against, you know, fertility issues, right? But that's the answer to that question. And that doesn't mean it's not, there's not a negative effect. It means it's the least negative effect, you know? Um, and so uh, there is a life stage to this, but it, um, 
you know, and that, that's very complicated for thinking about things like quotas, where you, how do you have a quota in place for a group of, where people are moving in and out of the status. That's, that's a, I think that's a complicated issue. Um, but it seems to me that what we really should be working on is how can we change our organizations where these things are less consequential for people. Um, and I think that it will be good for women, it'll be good for mothers, it'll be good for men who want to be involved in caregiving. And if done right, it's good for organizations as well. So. So, so uh, I, I like to say to organizations, it's like an oven. <laughs> you know, you're baking. You want the heat coming from top and the bottom. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, and, and, and actually, that may sound like, yeah, you want to have it all, but that's not impossible um, within an organization that you would have sort of grassroots people who are wanting to see things done differently and leaders at the very top who increasingly buy into the argument that to be successful, uh, you know, at this point in time in history, we need to be drawing on the full talent of everybody, you know, so we need to be doing things. So you can kind of get that pressure from top and bottom in a good organization. The problem where you actually have trouble is implementation in the middle, right? The middle managers who's, who are more concerned about is this, as you were saying, is, you know, is, what are the attendance problems gonna be? Who's gonna be there? That sort of thing. And so how, you know, the, how do you with, use the pressure from the top and the bottom to get past, I think, the common sticking point, which is the, middle, the missing middle? The Rose Project, I think, is instructive here. Uh, Leslie Perlow here in the Harvard Business School, who did the project on Boston Consulting Group, is very instructive. What these programs have had in common, the ones that I've looked at, uh, is that they really implement change at the team level of the organization. Um, with a lot of training where managers are involved in coming up with the specific ways to achieve the organization's goals. And so they are either, you could say, buying into it, or if you want to be more cynical, they're co-opted into it, or what have you, um, but something to really get middle management on board. Um, you know, I mean, not all organizations have top and bottom support, but even with that, it, it's not a done deal. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm working on a paper right now, right, in, in absolutely this area, and I'm, I'm going to highlight the role of men mm -hmm. leaders. So fathers of daughters who are between mm -hmm. 25 and 35, and then husbands or partners mm -hmm. of women mm -hmm. at the bottom, so friends at the top and bottom. If you can get people who have daughters mm -hmm. who are going, getting to the stage in, and leaving the stage, if you can get their buy-in mm -hmm. while they're still influential at the top of an organization, mm -hmm. and couple that with a, a, a father's desire to be more with his family mm -hmm. at the, uh, and to support his partner yeah. at the bottom, I think that that's kind of a positive yeah. effect because I think hardest part is the bit in the middle because you have the mommy world so on yeah. and because you have kind of all the hazing going on right. about well I went through it why shouldn't you exactly and then you have the FaceTime thing yeah. and then you have the men in the thing because at that point you're still trying to make sure that your career advances right and it's not until you get to the next stage where you feel like okay poof I made this oh my god what did I just go through and how can I suffer Exactly. People's incentives change, and what they're really yeah. gunning for changes. Uh, I think I think it's really good, and and I think you're so right. I mean, this idea there um, there are. Um, it, I guess one of the most encouraging things lately in our lives. I have been working um, in, with a lot of um, a lot of companies in the Silicon Valley, and the, the number of men there that want to make a difference on these issues is quite large. And so to harness, so harnessing um, sort of men allies in this, I think is very important. And you're exactly right. It's you know a lot of times their sympathy for this comes about because of their connection to their wives and daughters. Because it's very disorganized, yeah. but it's, it's about having a collective impact strategy yeah, exactly. for this. Yeah. The problem is that 
many of the actors involved are disenfranchised, disempowered. Right. That coming back into the workplace. Right. Force, who talks to those people? Yeah, no exactly. Yeah. Shell Salmon talks to the people in the box. Mm -hmm. Nobody talks to the people outside the box. Right. And it's about telling those people at the top and bottom, and here's what you can do in an aligned way mm -hmm. that actually will have some traction. And that yeah. depends on the work. Yeah. Off. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a big problem. Yeah, it is a big. It is a big. It's a very hard problem. Um, yeah. But yeah. Okay. No, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Could you give us your opinion on the fact that making those implementation or those best practices policy may change according to the work of the worker? Mm -hmm. So some work are more anti-lawyer, um, such as being a lawyer, whereas being in the consultancy world, you need to be collaborating all the time. So maybe the mechanism to transform the gender and reducing the gender Yeah, I, mean, I think it really, um, you know, we, we, if you go in and try to work on this within, within in any industry or within any firm even, firms have their own specific cultures, it is the case that, at least for me, I go in with sort of a broad set of abstract things that I think we're trying to achieve. And it's how it actually plays out, what you're actually going to be doing and how you're going to implement it very much depends on the nature of work. Um, for example, you know, results only work environment, um, you know, you can work wherever you want, whenever you want, as long as the work gets done, does not work for flight attendants, right? I mean, you can't, the flight attendant kind of has to be on the plane, the right plane at the right time to do his or her job. So it doesn't work there, right? And so, you know, it, it wouldn't make any sense. But the underlying idea that what we're trying to do is give uh, employees more control over their schedule, that can be implemented um, within, with flight attendants. And we've seen this at United Airlines. They've come up with this really elaborate way that the flight attendants can change schedules quite easily with each other without asking for supervisor uh, permission. It's been very, very popular because it's given people control over their schedule, okay? And so there's this like, underlying abstract principle that I think is really important um, that, um, but how it plays out is going to be different. And Aaron Kelly's recent work, um, they're rolling out results-only work environment in an IT firm and in a nursing home, okay? Think about that. Those are two very different jobs. How those programs look, you know, to the average person are going to be like they're, they're totally different things. But drill down, and it is about schedule control, trying to, you know, how does that play out in these different environments? So I think that's, um, you know, that's where a lot of the action is, is that if we want to make change, um, we've got to be working, I think, in doing some work in actual workplace environments and trying out things in different places so we can learn what the different options that we have um, in fact are. So. I know that's one of the things that you're doing, so maybe we'll have you back <laughs> in a couple of years to share what you've learned from that. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. So um, next week is spring break. We will have no seminar. And then the week after that, um, we'll have uh, Professor Wendy Goldberg from UC Irvine coming back. I think she's actually going to be talking about young people's um, conceptions, long-term conceptions of their careers and how accurate they are.